So we've been engaging together in this practice of being awake, exploring what it means for us to inhabit more fully and more consciously our unfolding experience. And we can have lots of ideas about how it should be, how it should go, what we'd like to be happening. And in a somewhat fortunate and yet it seems unfortunate manner, however, the way it unfolds is not always necessarily as we might have wished or hoped it would be. And what we might imagine as a somehow rapid and linear movement from chaos, conflict and confusion to clarity, peace and ease is not necessarily what happens on day one. Maybe someone else had a different uh, experience of that and sometimes of course it can be that we simply arrive, sit down and uh, feel a sense of just immediate landing and no real challenge in being present. But for many of us what happens is something a little different. We have the opportunity here to meet our lives. And of course we meet our lives here as they are, not as we might have wished or imagined they could or should be. So I'd like to reflect this evening on one of the fundamental elements of our experience, what it means to be alive. How we handle the, the fact that as human beings we are incredibly sensitive. How we are impacted, we are touched, we are affected by experiences, by situations, by things, by circumstances, people, actions around us. And we're equally affected, touched, impacted by thoughts, by feelings, by inner experiences, we could say, sensations of body, heart and mind that arise in our experience. And as we settle, as we enter into this process of being here, that inner experience starts to stand out more clearly to us. We start to see it, we start to feel it very fully. And this capacity we have for being touched, for being impacted, for being sensitive to life, also comes with a responsive capacity, an ability to, in a way, come forth with some engagement, some response, or some reaction to what it is that's happening. And this is very much at the heart of what it means to be alive and to be a human being, to be inhabiting the sensitivity, inhabiting this capacity for being touched, for being affected, for being touched with things which are both sweet and equally things which are poignant, painful or difficult. To be touched by that which is lovely, but also the capacity to, to encounter that which is distinctly unlovely, or so it seems to us at times. And in the midst of the situation where we are touched, we are affected, we are impinged upon, in which we find ourselves engaging, responding, reacting in many different ways, what we can see is that there's an underlying pattern and tendency and urge playing itself out. And one of the ways we could describe this quite simply is that there's an, an effort, there's an attempt, there's an ongoing pressure and engagement it seems within us to try and get comfortable, to try and stay comfortable. Just very simple, put in those terms. We'd like to be in a condition where what's arising is enjoyable, easy, pleasant. And we don't really like being in a condition where what's arising, what we're encountering is challenging, difficult or scary. And so this energy, this effort goes into trying to organize, adjust and frame or arrange what's happening around us and when we come on retreat what's happening within us to be comfortable and it's really hard work you know it's really hard work a number of people have mentioned and in, uh, in groups and other points how how the the process of being here is at times challenging and sometimes you know really tiring we can feel you know it's just after 7 30 
And, uh, you know, some of us are probably feeling quite tired. Any, anyone recognise that experience? You know, imagine if you were to describe to your friends at home what you've been doing. You know, so, well, yeah, we did have to get up a bit earlier and it was a little earlier than we expected, but, you know, that's, that's how things go sometimes. And then, you know, we just sat around, wandered back and forth, sat around a bit more, stood about doing nothing, had some food, lay down, rested, got up, sat down, wandered about, here we are. And yet somehow it seems like hard work. And it is, of course, because the, the tendencies and the patterns that we come here, that we arrive here with, consume a lot of energy and generate a lot of pressure. So this is part of what we encounter to begin with. This is part of what's here. And I think it's really interesting and useful here to reflect upon the fact that we're not just sensitive. We're very sensitive. We have this pretty limited capacity to handle the range of conditions that's out there. And that's not a criticism or a judgment, it's just how it is. You know, that the range of temperatures that are possible, that have been detected in this universe, starts at minus 273 centigrade and goes up to some, you know, tens of thousands of degrees centigrade in the core of a, um, of a sun. You know, that's a pretty wide range. And human beings, us, we're comfortable from somewhere about 16, 17 degrees to about 26. Huh? Much below 16, 17. It's cold. We don't like it. It gets over much over 26. It's hot. We don't like it. You know. Now, of course, some people are happy at 12 to 20, and others are happy between 22 and 36. But that's still a pretty narrow range given the, right, the, the spectrum of temperature that we could encounter and we might encounter in our lives. You know, that's just our bodies. And of course, our bodies, you know, on the inside, they need to stay within just half a degree or two of 37 degrees. Because if it gets much more than half a degree either side, we start to feel really bad. Two degrees one side or the other, we feel like we're just about going to expire. And three or four degrees either side, we do expire. If at the core of our body, the temperature shifts that much. It's like, whoa. Things can be minus 273 or plus, you know, 200,000, um, but we cannot and survive. And that just tells us something about how our system is set up the way it is to try and make sure we don't freeze or cook, amongst other things that could happen to us. But that's just a simple one. Of course, we notice our psyche too, our, our, our sense of who we are and how we experience our heart and our mind is also something very sensitive. Like some of you had um, group meetings today and I would imagine that for some of you, maybe quite a few of you, there was a few thoughts that occurred in your mind about the group meeting before they happened. Like, what's it going to be like? You know, will I think of something to say? Will it be, you know? And we can feel just coming into engagement with each other as human beings in the normal way, often there's some sense of risk of discomfort, of anxiety, of embarrassment, of confusion. Oh, it's not easy for us to be what we are. It's quite simple. And the amount of sensitivity there, very well um, illustrated in a, in a story where a, an old samurai warrior in, in Japan is wandering along a path near a village and he's contemplating some really sort of deep questions he has in his heart and um, as he's walking along just pondering and wondering he comes across this old Zen monk sitting cross-legged on the side of the road really kind of peaceful not doing anything and he comes up to the old monk and looks down oh, he says ah oh, monk monk you're a spiritual man you can answer my question can you tell me the difference between heaven and hell? And the little old monk looks up at the big, strong samurai warrior and he says, Samurai, your clothes are dusty. Your hair is unwashed. Samurai, I see rust on your sword and you smell bad. Samurai, why should I speak to you? And the proud warrior, he's 
hears these insulting words from this little pipsqueak and he thinks, I will not take that from you, pulls out a sword and he's just about to take off the monk's head with one blow of his sword and the monk looks at him and says, that's hell. And in that moment he realises, oh my gosh, this little character, this little being has just risked his life to show me that hell is to be caught in the grip of anger about a few empty words such that I would kill this person completely in breach of my, my whole training as, as a noble samurai warrior. And he starts looking, suddenly realising what a gift he's been giving. And he's looking down at this little monk and he's beaming and he's just full of appreciation and gratitude and love for what he's just been offered. And the monk looks up at him and he says, that's heaven. And yet, interesting, isn't it, how sensitive we are? How a few words can someone, from someone can drive us to anger and possibly even murderous rage, although probably not having brought our sword, we don't get to sort of get that out. And um, Fortunately, we don't get that out anyway. And yet one of the things we might notice here is that people sometimes might, we might find them irritating. We might find ourselves irritating. We might sometimes find, of course, other people really delightful and wonderful. And we can notice how it is to experience in our heart those qualities of feeling a sense of warmth and loving and kindliness towards another or towards ourselves. And how, how sweet that is. And how when there's anger or judgment or criticism towards another or towards ourselves, how we notice how, how painful that is. And yet, how much of the time it seems we don't really have that much control over what's arising in us. Whether we're feeling something sweet and loving, or whether we're feeling angry or reactive towards others, towards ourselves. And so, we need to start to pay attention to the sensitivity, this way in which we are impacted, are affected, are touched. Because it's happening ongoingly. We're constantly in that situation of being touched, being affected. And most of the time there is so much going on that we don't even see how the process is happening. We're just, in a way, swept along by it and easily and often overwhelmed by it. Overwhelmed in such a way that we can't really do anything other than react. And this, this is deeply unsatisfying deeply painful to be just carried away by patterns of reactivity in many different ways as we can be. So part of what happens in this process of trying to handle our experience, which is often feels too much or too intense or too, like, just the sensitivity that we have can't quite meet it, it seems, is that there's a way in which we're, we're touching or we're being we're tuning in to the experience of overwhelm, of too much going on. And that's often how we arrive on a retreat, with some degree of overwhelm, just with having to handle our lives. And as we settle in, as we start to feel into what it's like, we can feel that sense of, oh my gosh, how deeply we're trying to avoid, control and manipulate things so we don't get swept away, so we don't become overwhelmed. And of course, when we were very young, to be overwhelmed as, a, as an infant is to feel like we're being annihilated. Like just the world is completely destroyed when too much sensitive or too much intensity impacts upon our sensitive system. And so there's a, there's a very, very deep fear we have of being overwhelmed, of being out of control, of being impacted by something we can't handle. And what that creates then is a fear and an anxiety and an orientation towards trying to avoid anything that might lead to, first of all, discomfort or distress, but second of all, too much discomfort, too much distress, which we associate with some sense of overwhelm and therefore annihilation. And it's scary. It's scary. And we don't necessarily recognize that's driving us a lot of the time. But if we would reflect, if we consider of our lives, you know, how much time, how much of the energy of my life, and it's a question to come back to at points along the way, you know, how much of my life or of my actions, my engagement have been to avoid what I fear, 
How much of my time and my energy goes into avoiding, trying to avoid what I fear? And it's really interesting to be honest and see, my gosh, actually quite a lot. Even just the time spent, you know, thinking, how will I stay warm? To go back to that particular thing. I don't know if this goes on for you, but, you know, sort of, how many clothes do I need to wear when I go into the meditation hall to be warm but not too hot? You ever have that quandary? You know, because we're not really supposed to be putting them on and taking them off according to the general idea. There's no rule against it, but we mostly don't. And so it's like, oh, what if it's hot this time? It was colder earlier, then it got warmer. Just in a small way, that's connected with that same process. Of course, it can be something much larger. You know, some of us might have not quite found it easy to go out in the rain today because it's wet. Rain's wet. It's by definition gets you wet when it's raining. So I guess a lot of people might not have spent as long out there as if it was sunny and warm. But what is it about wet? And rain, that's a problem for us. I'm not saying it isn't a problem, but what is it? Oh, well, if I get wet, I could get cold, isn't it? I mean, baths are all right. We don't mind a hot bath, at least you know, on a cool day. So it's not wet per se, it's getting cold. Why is it that we don't like getting cold? It's unpleasant, but also it could lead to hypothermia. We could die if we get really cold, really wet, and it's windy. So there's a way in which we just avoid going there at all. We don't want to go out in the rain. But the effect of that is that our world starts to get smaller. And smaller. And as our world gets smaller, because we're not willing to inhabit the places that we find scary, that in some way either threaten us or have some association which might be quite distant and tenuous with something that threatens us in the same way that cool dampness is associated with, you know, freezing to death. It's a long way from getting cold and rain, cold and damp in the rain here at Guy House to actually dying of it. But something in us doesn't want to go down there, even one or two steps. Sometimes it's like that, isn't it? So it's important to kind of see how compassionate, to, or to see, to look with compassionate eyes at how hard it is for us to handle such things. And of course, sometimes what we're having to handle is much, much more difficult than that. Sometimes what we're encountering is really deeply tender and painful and scary to us. And the sense can be that I do not want to, or I cannot continue to have to experience this. It's too much. It's too difficult. It's too painful. And yet the interesting thing is that that often has a sense of, if I have to stay with it, it'll be too, too much. But in fact, it won't actually be worse than it is now. And we're already here. We're already surviving it. So what happens is, with fear, is our mind gets drawn into the future. And in the future, we get busy with trying to figure out how to protect ourselves, how to ensure that the outcome is as we wish. But we can't actually ever deal with what's happening, because what's happening is happening right here. The fear is happening in the present moment. And that's really important to notice, to see. When we're pushing something away or trying to reject it, and we're leaning into the future where when I get this done or when I do this, then it will be gone. Actually, we can't resolve it that way. The only resolution is here. Oh, actually, maybe I'm afraid of what it will be like if it continues to be this way. But we're already here. And if we give space to what's here, if we see how the story goes to the future, but the actual experience is happening right now, we can meet it here. We can start to feel, we can start to breathe, we can perhaps start to, to soften or widen our attention around the experience to see actually there's room for this here. The presence of that which is difficult does not mean we have to be absent. That's an idea and an association from when we were very little and we had no way to handle things. But we have much more capacity now than that, even though we may not have yet fully understood 
or come to trust that capacity. We have that. We have that capacity. So if we reflect in this way and we see, we consider that we can't avoid being impacted. We can't separate ourselves from this life that touches us. And the, the attempt to do so is actually more painful. And this is the kind of rather tragic irony, is that the attempt to separate ourselves from that which is difficult or painful or scary becomes in itself more painful than that which we're trying to get away from. Because we close down, we become distant, we become cut off, we become numb. And in that there's a sense of being imprisoned within that attempt to not have to feel whatever it is we don't wish to feel. And that sense of being trapped or disconnected becomes associated with as if it's the same thing as the difficult experience. And it's not. It's the result and the effect of the unconscious and habitual reaction that we have of withdrawing from. And it's not something we should blame ourselves from, for. It's something that's very deeply wired into our cells, it seems. And just as, you know, the very earliest forms of life, single-celled organisms were just floating around in some kind of chemical soup. And sometimes the chemical soup was yummy and they'd go, mmm. And other times the chemical soup maybe had something in that was poisonous and they go, ooh, and the ooh version is always, you see, you can see it under a microscope. It shrinks, it contracts, it tightens. And of course, we're just a big bag full of umpteen billion cells that are all much the same. They just tend to squeeze in. And so a lot of what we encounter as we come into what can seem like sometimes a bit of a shocking transition from our life or an impactful transition to really give ourselves to being present in the way we're doing it is we start to feel the effect of all that tightness, that holding. And as we start to give space to it, as we start to allow ourselves to just explore what would happen if I open to this? What would happen if I allow myself to feel more deeply, to be more closely in contact with this moment, which is my life, because there isn't a life somewhere else that we can have. There isn't another version of it that's somewhere in the cupboard that we can trade this one for. There isn't. And sometimes we have this idea that there's somewhere else to go, but there isn't. There's just this. And this is kind of unstoppable. It doesn't come to an end this being here. But we can learn to handle it. We can learn to open to it. To, As I was saying before, what happens when we keep withdrawing or disconnecting and a lot of why we're lost in our thinking and why it's difficult and takes time to find our way back to the present moment, find our way back to the immediacy of life, that mechanism of spinning off into thinking is part of the way in which we've learned to stay distant from what's uncomfortable. It's part of the way we actually become numb and desensitized because we're not really feeling. We're just spinning in thought. And it gives us some degree of distance, apparent distance. It's actually not really distance. And some degree, a sense of security or control. If we look at our thinking, so much of it is concerned with figuring out how to get and keep hold of that which we think we want or need, and how to get rid of and to avoid that which we wish not to experience. And in that being lost in the thinking, not inhabiting our experience fully, there is some illusory sense of safety or control, but at the same time there's a deeply painful loss of contact with our vitality, our aliveness, with the, the fullness and the the beauty, actually, of this living system. So just to see this process, to begin to get to know this process, is very much a parallel journey, together with the training of the mind and the heart to just be present.
to just connect, to just simply be here. And sometimes we think that that's what meditation is all about. We kind of measure our meditation according to how many breaths or how many moments I can be present before my mind moves somewhere else. And that form of measuring, it's again, it's a, it's a, it's a very limited way of looking at what's happening here. That is one of the things we're developing, yes. But at the same time as that capacity is developing, and it develops by simply coming back, by reconnecting again and again, just keeping on re-entering, re-inhabiting, re-honoring, actually, our experience by coming into it, by coming close to it, by letting ourselves feel it. As we do that, the capacity to connect and to sustain that connection becomes stronger. And in those things that we experience that are not easy, as we connect with them, as we open to them, as we make space for them, we see that it's more possible to be present even with those difficult experiences. And that the closing down that happens, that's habitual and unconscious, as we start to see it happening and make it conscious, we realize there's a choice. There's actually a possibility to support this openness, to allow this sensitivity that's both connected with a quality of vulnerability that's not easy for us, but that's also the basis of openness and connection with life, with others, with ourselves, to allow this to actually be felt and to deepen in us. And part of what enables us to do this, to actually open our hearts to our life as it is, is to understand that the interpretation we place on it very often, very easily, that it's somehow my fault, that this is not true. Or that it's only me this happens to. But this is not true. One of the things that happens in the small group meetings is that we start to see that what goes on for us is not that different than what goes on for other people. And it's fascinating to recognize this. That despite the fact that they didn't have my life, they didn't have my parents, they didn't have my circumstance, they don't have my body, but they've still got the same things, or kind of similar things, that I can recognize. And maybe some of those things feel stronger for me, or for others we might see some of them feel stronger for them. But we recognize, oh, this is part of what it is to be human. It's not our fault. And there's a There's, there's actually a saying or a maxim of the Stoic tradition, of Stoic teaching that, that speaks to this. And it says, the unlearned person blames everybody else. The learner blames themselves. But the one who has learned blames no one. It's very interesting because if we're totally not self-reflective at all, we mostly think the problems are all out there. And that's actually what you see going on in a lot of the world. Always the problem is out there, nothing to do with me. If everyone else would sort themselves out, things would be fine. I've had that thought myself on occasion. I'm sure you can recognize it. But then we start to look and we see, oh my gosh, look what's going on in here. Oh, 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 maybe this is the problem. Maybe it's me that's causing all the problem. And we somehow start to think it's my fault that it's like this. But no, it's not. There's a process we need to understand going on here that's part, inevitably part, of being alive. And it's something that the Buddha spoke of again and again. And invited us as, as human beings and as perhaps followers of his practice and his teachings, to reflect on for ourselves. He said, we cannot avoid the fact that things are difficult sometimes. And that sometimes they're very difficult. We can't avoid that. There isn't an escape from that reality. Not in this life and not outside of this life. And he spoke about the way we experience what is challenging. He talked about the reality of having a body, subject to birth, Having been born, it ages, it gets sick, 
and ultimately it dies. And none of that's particularly easy or pleasant, that process. In fact, that particular, that's sort of the traditional translation, talks about birth, ageing, sickness, death. And I, I used to often wonder, I'd sort of think, hmm, why does sickness come after ageing? Because I got sick long before I thought I was ageing. And I got to know, you know, getting sick pretty, pretty young on, as you know, probably most of us do. But I came across a translation uh, um, not so long ago that I rather liked. And it, it's, he, the translation said it's not just birth, ageing, sickness, death, but a better way to describe it was birth, ageing, decay, and death. And decay, it's kind of, mm, it's not a very pleasant word, is it? We kind of get what that means. It's like, oh, 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 it's not the kind of sickness you get better from that happens. And, you know, it only takes us two, maybe, if we're lucky, three decades on this planet before we start to realise, oh, our body kind of has a couple of decades of grace if we're lucky when it grows and it works most of the time pretty well and feels hmm, a reasonable amount of the time pretty good. And then it starts to slowly head towards not working as well or feeling as good less and less of the time or more and more of the time. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's what happens. It's like that for everybody. You know, in different proportions and different speeds, but that's what it's like to have a body. The fact that ours is uncomfortable or painful or some bits of it don't work quite as well as we wish they do. You know, my eyes don't do what they used to and so I have this funny thing going on where I'd like to see you and I'd like to see this, but actually I can't do them very easily both together. So I do... Neither of them as well as I would like to, but there we are. That's just how it is. And five years ago, that wasn't the case, but five years from now, gosh knows what it will be. You know, Maybe I really won't be able to see this, or I won't be able to see anyone out there at the same, in the same sort of process. And that's just our bodies. Human beings, we have a heart that feels. And the Buddha spoke of... Encountering sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair in life. And it doesn't sound like a great advertisement for meditation, does it? Come along and get your fill of, you know, sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. It's like, hmm, yeah, we didn't put that on the front page of the brochure, did we? Sorry, you know, if you, you know, we much more like talk about things like peace and freedom and all of that, which is part of the story. We'll get there. Um, but we sort of, I think we can recognise these things because they've been in our lives in smaller or not so small ways, for sure. Probably few of us would be so fortunate as to have never experienced some really painful loss or grief or sorrow in our lives. And again, we might think it's our fault or if we'd just done it right, if we'd just got it right, or if our parents and their parents and all the people around us had just done it the way it should have been done this life, we wouldn't have that, you know? And it's not true. And there's a really simple way, at least for myself it seems simple, that makes that to reflect, that makes that clear. If you love something in this world, someone, something, one day you'll be parted from it. By accident, by intention, by choice, by death. And that will be painful. It will be painful, sorrowful, grievous, to be parted from something we love or someone we love. It will hurt. That's just how it is. That's what it's like when we have a human heart, and we have one, all of us. And if we don't love something or someone in this life, that will hurt. That will be painful. That will be grievous to us. Because that's what it is to have a human heart. And there isn't a third option that I've figured out. And I've said this many times, and I've never had someone come up and say, oh, there's a third way that could go. We either love, and there'll be pain and loss, or we don't, and there'll be pain and loss. So what that says is, oh, experiencing pain, sorrow, grief, that's not because we did it wrong. It's not in any way our fault. It's part of what it means to be alive. To see this, to begin to understand that this is the nature of things. It's not the totality of our experience, but it is a part of it. When we focus on the sense of that as being somehow my fault, my mistake, then it seems to take on as if it's the whole of what's here, and it's not. So we're asked not just to accept 
that this is in our life because we have a body and we have a heart. You know, the Buddha also spoke about our mind and what that experience is, which he, simp- he described in terms of being associated with what we don't like, being separated from what we do like and not getting what we want. Who doesn't know those experiences? Not getting what we want. Gosh, that's tough. I don't like it. I don't know anybody who likes not getting what they want. It would be so easy, couldn't it? You know, if just everybody could organise themselves to make sure I got what I wanted. Wouldn't that be a better way for the world to be? Such a human wish. And yet, it's not what happens. So to begin to forgive ourselves. Forgive others. Forgive the world and life itself for being the way it is. This is really important. We need to do this, to forgive ourselves fundamentally and profoundly for the life that we've had being the life that it is. And to understand that we and everyone, of course, are doing the best that we can. That's how it is for us all. And we make mistakes along the way. We do. We do. That's part of being human too. To give ourselves permission to be still learning what it means to be alive. To not assume that because we, you know, finished our um, so-called formal education, that therefore we know all about it. We know that we don't, but we mostly have to pretend we do because everyone else does. And it's not cool to admit that we really actually haven't got a clue how the heck this thing works half the time. You know, it just wouldn't go down well, would it? But it is the truth. Most of the time we don't really know. Or we're not in touch with the mechanisms of what is making it happen. Which is why it keeps going, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lovely story I remember uh, one of my teachers describing. It's a bit like being um, on a boat in the ocean trying to navigate and steer. And you're sort of steering this way and steering that way and wondering. Sometimes you kind of, it seems to go the way you're pointing. Sometimes it goes the opposite direction. And after a while you wander downstairs and have a look in the, um, sort of in, in, the, in the boat at the bottom. And you realise that the steering wheel wasn't actually attached to the rudder. And all of that, trying to make it go in certain directions, that wasn't what was driving the boat. And then, oh, okay, so what's going on? Oh, there's the wind and there's the currents. And maybe the rudder has some influence here, but there's a lot more going on than that. And one of the things in this process is to see that the learning is what makes our journey come alive. Allowing ourselves to still be learning here. Not have got it right, not have sorted it out already. There's another story I really like about another Zen sort of a character. And on this occasion involved a student of Zen who uh, had the opportunity to meet the, the the grand master of the, the tradition. This was a very sort of uh, much loved but also respected and um, sort of very severe and sort of committed teacher who it was only possible to get a very short interview and just a little bit of time and the, the student was very excited and he was looking forward to meeting this, um, this teacher. And so he went along to the Zen master and she was sitting there like a mountain just absolutely solid, looking at him, not a hint of a smile. And he he came and he bowed and he said, Master, Master, can you tell me what's the most important thing to cultivate, to develop? And she looked at him, she said, hmm. Good judgment, wise discernment, that's the most important thing. He says, oh, yes, of course, of course, good judgment, yes, thank you, thank you, yeah. He said, how do you develop, how do you cultivate this good judgment, good discernment? She said, hmm, experience. Oh, yes, thank you, thank you, of course, I should have known. Experience, experience. Ah, how do you get experience? Hmm, bad judgment. (laughs) Do you recognize that process? 
in your life. To actually start to see that that is not an error, that it works that way. There is no other way to learn. If it were possible to write it down on a piece of paper and hand it out so we'd all get it and go, we could go home, we'd have done that. Someone else would have done that long before us. We can only learn this by actually travelling the territory of what it is we need to learn. And what it is we need to learn is sometimes not easy for us, sometimes really scary for us. But it's only here, and we're only here with it, because there is something here for us to learn. And that we can learn through this journey. So one of the things to reflect on and to really come back to, to let ourselves be in touch with, is the way in which our lives actually come from the attempt to care for our lives. Not always skillful, not always effective, but nonetheless, if we look and consider carefully what we will see, and this is something I've done and come back to as a practice regularly, oh, actually, in the end, everything I ever did, even the most horrendous and painful mistakes that I made, in my life. At some level I was trying to take care of myself or others that I cared about or situations that I was concerned about. In some way that's what was going on every time. And sometimes of course in rather stupid ways it would seem. That's perhaps a little strong language to use but sometimes it seemed appropriate. I once um, tried to clean some marks off the top of my car very carefully with a cloth and they wouldn't come off so I went and got the scouring pad from the kitchen. And gosh knows what I was thinking at the time, but they got the marks off all right. But, um, you know, it's just a small thing to say, but I normally think of myself as a practical person. And it was like, oh my gosh, what was going on there? And it was like, I really wanted to get those marks off. I really did not like them. And of course, I got left with something else. Interesting. Sometimes we can be a bit like that with ourselves. We think we've got to scrub or scour and we oh actually that hurts oh no maybe it's alright just to rub this a bit more gently this human life this human body this human heart to just come up and make contact with it to be gentle with it to be soft with it to bring a kind attention to our experience when we recognize our vulnerability our sensitivity the fact that we aren't in control of that which is most important to us which is how we feel on the inside then maybe quite naturally there's a, a sense of caring and a willingness to, to forgive, to forgive ourselves. There's a piece I'd like to read you from a uh, Hindu spiritual teacher and practitioner, Kirpal Vinanji. And he, he writes, he says, Break your heart no longer. Each time you judge yourself, you break your heart. You stop feeding on the love that is the wellspring of your vitality. But now the time has come, your time, to live, to celebrate, and to see the goodness that you are. There is no evil, no wrong in you or in any other. There is only the thought of it, and the thought has no substance. You are dear, divine, and very, very pure. Let no one, no thing, no idea or ideal obstruct you. Even if one comes in the name of truth, forgive the thought for its unknowing. Do not fight it, just let go and breathe into the goodness that you are. To understand that everything, and to really ask and look and see this, that when we have acted, even in ways we may feel sorrow with regard to, at the core of it was some attempt to take care of ourselves, or take care of something or someone. That's always the case. To see that, actually to honour the goodness of our intention and the kindness, the care, the love that is intrinsic and inherent to what it is that we are, but that has not yet been married to or been supported by the wisdom that we need the understanding that we need to live in this world. And so the journey of our life is not one to actually become someone who cares, because we all care deeply. And even if we can't feel the caring, we'll care about that. Even if we can't feel the depth of caring in our heart, 
the fact that we don't feel it becomes something we care about and becomes really difficult. Because it is very much our nature, at the heart of what it is that's fundamentally real, that isn't personal to us, that is shared amongst us all, is a profound and deep caring in what it is that life is. And yet there needs also to be the understanding with it, the wisdom that comes from beginning to really connect with, to examine, to experience our life. And so to bring a kindness in the way we attend, a kindness that allows and makes space for our messing it up, getting it wrong, having to begin again and again and again, as we do, but learning slowly along the way what's going on here and what is useful. And part of what happens as we do it, as we bring that attention with kindness to our experience, it begins to soften and ultimately dissolves the sense of separateness, of disconnectedness, of feeling other or apart or out of relationship with that which is around us, with others and with life. And at times, of course, out of relationship with ourselves, disconnected from ourselves, which is so painful, so distressing. And yet just letting ourselves feel, letting ourselves kindly contact and sense into what is here, that begins to soften, begins to open, begins to naturally dissolve. And we start to see that this is possible for us, to inhabit our life more fully and consciously, to be present, to be sensitive, to feel that which is sweet equally and that which is painful or tender, to be touched by this. We see that the real danger is losing contact with this life, with the ground of being present, of being awake, of being sensitive and alive. And that this is not something that is bound to be our condition. That we have the capacity to wake up again in those places of disconnection, of distance, or of having fallen asleep to ourselves. And although that's an uncomfortable place to wake up, the very fact of our waking up shows us that we can inhabit this too. We can include this too. That there is no experience which means we must be exiled from our life. Because that habitual reflex urge to push it away doesn't actually push it away. It pushes us out of relationship. And when we start to handle that reflex start to see it and soften, release it, and start to cultivate the capacity to re-engage, to meet, to come into contact with, we see that actually this heart has much greater capacity, this life has much greater potential than we could have imagined for it. And that which is difficult is allowed to pass through the field of openness, that we start to contact, that we start to recognize. So it's not that we need to stop things coming in. Because in fact, when we do, they end up trapped. When we allow things in, by that very allowance, we allow them to pass through the space of this moment, the space of our life. And that in that sensitivity, in that openness, in that allowing of life to move, there's a profound okayness. There's a profound at easeness. And a beginning and a deepening of trusting in our life as it is. That this is the vehicle of our journey of awakening for all the challenges in it that we may wish not to have. That nonetheless, this is the journey that we have. And that in that abiding, in that simply being right here, the sensitivity, the openness, the responsive capacity that starts to shift from being a reactivity of pushing away or grabbing hold of to being actually a capacity to discern what is useful, what is skillful, what is wholesome and contributing to our deeper well-being 
and towards the well-being of others. As that wisdom and discernment starts to develop, then rather than grabbing after or pushing away according to what is pleasant or unpleasant, more naturally the heart and our life becomes engaged, becomes interested, becomes drawn towards the deepening and the developing of that which uplifts our heart, uplifts our life, uplifts the lives of others too, and naturally starts to become disinterested and to disengage from those patterns which, which entangle or which limit or which bind our life. And that's, of course, a journey. It takes time. But it's a journey we can and are already engaged in by virtue of being here at all. And so this place where we find ourselves right now and in each moment, wherever that might be, whether delightful, whether kind of ordinary, or whether kind of challenging, or very difficult, wherever it might be, this is the place where we can more deeply awaken, more deeply open. And in that allowing of experience to move through, we see that the life that moves, moves without taking us with it. That we start to discover a quality of spaciousness, of stillness, of abiding, in which we could say, there is a peacefulness because we're no longer being carried by, we're no longer bound to the experiences that move, which keep moving and keep showing themselves. That we don't need to bring them to an end, that we don't need to push them away, we don't need to take hold of them. What we simply are asked to do is to open with sensitivity, with interest, with kindness, and allow this process to awaken our life. To come to rest in the, in the peaceful dimension of life that is open, that is free, that is full, that is sensitive, and that is shared with all of life, with all beings, that is not owned, cannot be possessed, but nor ultimately cannot be lost. And it's in this that is shared with all of life. It is in this that our very openness and vulnerability takes us into and is an expression of. It is this that the heart, it is in this that the heart comes to rest. So let's sit together quietly for a few moments, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.